The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Um, there are two additional books <clears throat> that are, are not here in this bibliography, but uh, you may want to know about. Uh, one of them is by E.P. Sanders. It's called Judaism. Practice and Beliefs. Um, we're going to be saying something about E.P. Sanders later in the course. He's a very well-known uh, New Testament scholar, uh, a little radical in his views, and he has a special interest in the Jewish background to the New Testament. And um, this book came out last year. It's a little idiosyncratic, uh, and not every scholar is going to accept his particular uh, perspective on some of these things, but it is very instructive. And somebody was just asking me about Jewish feasts. He has quite a bit on Jewish feasts and uh, uh, other things that all of us are interested in, the, the uh, character of the temple, for example, and what went on the sacrifices, that kind of thing. It's, uh, it's a fat book. Sanders does not know how to write concisely. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's kind of an important thing, and, and some of you may be interested in, in pursuing it. The other book, uh, I ordered it from our bookstore, just, it's a pocket book. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> this thing has uh, l not even a thousand pages, 970. Uh, Peter Green, Alexander to Actium. Now, the significance of that title is that it is, a, again, a synthesis, rather detailed synthesis, of the historical period that we call the Hellenistic Age. And we'll talk about that in just a couple of minutes. From Alexander the Great to the Battle of Actium, which is when the Roman Empire kind of basically uh, took over. Uh, that period is very, very important. That's very interesting in many ways and has all kinds of implications for our understanding of the historical developments in Palestine. Uh, I said I ordered this, the bookstore received it about a month ago, and uh, one of my dear friends in the bookstore, um, oh boy, that's a, so she put, uh, she took one of the, oh here it is, look at this note, now see what respect faculty get here in this, uh, GM, that stands for Grandpa Moses. <laughs> Will you really read this or just look at the pictures? <laughs> well, I got two chapters read. I was hoping to read this before today's lecture, but 
couldn't quite manage. It's a wonderful book, really. If, if you're a history buff and you're interested in this kind of thing, uh, Green writes wonderfully well. And uh, it's, it's, this is a difficult period to get a handle on because so many things are going on. And uh, he, uh, he's about as good as, as you can find. The other alternative, of course, is, is uh, the older work by Will Durant, you know, his, well, his multi-volume thing and, and his volume on, on the Greek world has a section that wouldn't be as extensive as this. And it is also outdated, but um, it's a great work, only about 60 bucks. So uh, <clears throat> I better read it or my wife will not be happy with me. <laughs> All right, let's um, look at the political history of Palestine. And we're going to focus on the period from the year 198 before Christ, which is the year when the so-called Seleucid Empire, I will define that in just a minute, it's the year when the Seleucid Empire uh, took over Palestine. And then we'll summarize the history all the way to the period past the New Testament, to the year 135, which was the, really the, the end of the Jewish state. <clears throat> now, a little bit of background, first of all, as an introduction. <clears throat> you may recall, if you've studied a little bit of... Um, of the Old Testament historical period, or have some uh, knowledge of, um, of the world of the empires. Could you flip the middle uh, switch there for a second? In the ancient world, as you know, the world of the Old Testament, <clears throat> you can pretty much divide up the history on the basis of which empires seem to be dominant at a time. And uh, something of a uh, watershed came at the time of the monarchy in the, uh, the, Ju the Hebrew monarchy when the Assyrian Empire expanded uh, to an extent that really had not been known before. Uh, for a period, if you see the dotted lines, uh, these were the limits. That's pretty big already. Uh, those were the limits of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, towards the end of the ninth century before Christ. Within a couple of centuries, uh, it had expanded to conquer not only this area of Babylon and the, and the um, uh, getting into the, um, uh, the section of the Medes, but also part of Asia Minor. Uh, of course, Palestine, Palestine up to there is, of course, an area that had ne was never conquered by the Assyrians, uh, and into Egypt. <clears throat> when you come to um, the end of the um, book of Second Kings, let's say, or Second Chronicles, <clears throat> you know that by now there's a new empire in the picture, the Babylonian Empire. Eventually, the Babylonian Empire was able to control almost or approximately the same area that the Assyrian Empire had dominated before. Uh, this, of course, the time um, when Nebuchadnezzar comes and destroys Jerusalem, takes many of the Jews captive to Babylon. Babylonian Empire didn't last very long. <clears throat> you remember that when you get to chapter 5 of uh, the book of Daniel, 
there's a story about uh, the writing on the wall, and that very night Belshazzar was uh, uh, overcome by the Persians. <clears throat> the Persians extended the limits of the empire well beyond even what had uh, been experienced in the past uh, previous centuries, and uh, it was really quite amazing. You see, the, the Babylon Empire had only this area. Eventually, the Persians were able to extend west to conquer all of Asia Minor, even move into Europe, and they came this close from um, uh, conquering Athens and the Peloponnesian area. You can see that they went not only as far as Egypt, but even further west. And since these people, the Persians, the Medes and the Persians came from this area, they also went in that direction uh, to what is India, basically. Uh, absolutely astonishing. The Persian Empire lasted for a couple of centuries, <clears throat> from about 538 until the year 333, as I have it there in, the, uh, in your outline. The year 333, of course, is the year when Alexander the Great uh, finally defeated um, the Persian uh, emperor, and um, he wasn't satisfied with that and continued his conquests and went this direction to Palestine, eventually to Egypt, uh, and then also went as far as India. And um, you know the story that you know, he was crying because he, he was running out of places to conquer. The truth is he was probably crying because his generals were sick and tired of this and, and uh, they wanted no more of it. <clears throat> the conquests of Alexander uh, are incredibly significant for the development of the Mediterranean world uh, in, the, in the couple of centuries prior to the coming of Jesus, and therefore for our understanding of the New Testament, both in terms of Jesus' own ministry and also in terms of how the gospel expanded after the death and resurrection of Christ. It's important for you to appreciate that um, what Alexander was doing he wasn't interested simply in acquiring a lot of real estate. There was something else going on there. Alexander, you may remember this, he was actually a student of Aristotle. He was uh, given a very fine education. Uh, the story goes that he used to sleep with a copy of the Iliad, Homer's great classic, under his pillow. And uh, that may be an indication that for Alexander, it was very important not simply to conquer territory in a military sense, but also to conquer uh, areas in a cultural sense. As a result of his conquests, uh, you have vast areas in the ancient world that were not only subject to the Greek-speaking peoples in a, in a political sense, but also subject in a cultural sense, and therefore were affected quite significantly, quite deeply, by this intrusion of a different culture. 
this is part of the reason why we use the term Hellenistic <coughs> uh, to talk about this uh, period. Uh, it's, uh, I think, a good idea for you to make a distinction between the term Hellenic and the term Hellenistic. Now, we have a little problem here because not everybody uses the term Hellenistic in the same way. Uh, somebody like uh, Green, who is a classic historian, um, historian of, of the classical period, for him, the term Hellenistic probably has a, a strictly chronological meaning. That is, the, the period from Alexander to the Roman Empire. Uh, in other disciplines, in biblical studies, for example, uh, Hellenistic has a broader meaning to deal with the whole period that was influenced by the Greek-speaking world. So that even when you move into the Roman period, uh, if, if it has something of the flavor of what was going on before, you continue to use that term. But what is, what is really important here is to make a distinction between Hellenic as something that describes the native Greek culture, the classic Greek, Greek culture, um, you know, Aristotle and Plato and so on, and Thucydides and Demosthenes and all that stuff, Pericles, and Hellenistic, which would involve the adoption of the Hellenic culture by people who were not native Greeks. So Hellenistic um, involves the adoption of the Greek culture by non-Greeks. And what always happens in situations like that, uh, there is a certain degree of adaptation as well. Uh, see, Alexander did not impose Greek culture in the sense that he expected the people to abandon their own customs. But he brought these new ideas, new language, and new ideas about the gods, philosophy, the world, life. And uh, that became mixed into the ideas of, of the native populations where, where Alexander had come. That is also why sometimes we speak of Hellenistic Greek. Hellenistic Greek, again, can have a simply chronological meaning. Oh, it's the Greek spoken, not in the classical period, but in the subsequent period. But it can also have the idea of a language that has been modified somewhat, because when uh, a language is adopted by other people whose native language is different, inevitably there are going to be some changes. So Hellenistic Greek, we, sometimes we use the expression Koine Greek, the common language of, of all these people at that time, because Greek became, in fact, the language of diplomacy and of commerce, what we call the lingua franca. And um, that had all kinds of implications and repercussions for the development of these people, all these peoples in, in the ancient uh, Mediterranean world. And it is part of the reason, of course, why the New Testament was written in Greek. Now, by the time the books of the New Testament were written, 
the Roman Empire had defeated the Greeks for quite a while, a couple of generations. But Greek continued to be the primary means of communication. And uh, therefore, you have the New Testament written in that language. As I already mentioned, <clears throat> but it is worth pointing out again because of the contrast with, with the Jewish people, uh, when, when the Greek culture was brought, let's say, to the people in Asia Minor or Egypt, uh, there wasn't a lot of resistance to it, as far as we can tell. People continued to practice their own you know, uh, religion. Uh, they continued to hold to their own ideas, but, but they kind of dressed them up a little bit with the new um, things that they were being exposed to. <clears throat> it was no problem for most people at that time to see a new religion and say, well, that looks pretty good. Uh, maybe we can take a little bit from this religion, a little bit from that religion. Uh, that is a, a way of thinking that is referred to as syncretism. Syncretism. Uh, so that very different uh, ways of thinking about God and so on tend to uh, merge in, in one way or another. As you can imagine, for the Jews, that was not really an option. Uh, Judaism is what we call an, an exclusivistic religion, like Christianity. Exclusivistic, that is, because you're supposed to love the Lord your God with your whole heart and soul and mind and so on. Well, you see, if you're loving the Lord your God with your whole heart, there's not room left for some other God. It's exclusivistic. It does not allow, you see, for the notion of mixing religions. And the Christian faith is the same. There's none other name, you see, given to men. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to that but by me. And that's very offensive to people, especially today. But it was very offensive to them back then because what do you do? Well, you do get the best from wherever you want. Well, that's an important background to something that's going to happen uh, to the Jews in, in, uh, in the subsequent period. But all this begins with the work of Alexander. When he died, very young, very young, his empire <clears throat> eventually broke into a number of pieces. Uh, several of his generals became the rulers of some of these sections. Now, they are referred to as the diadochi. Uh, that's the Greek term that means the successors, the successors. And uh, this is, frankly, a very complicated history. And we don't want to worry about the details of that. During the next 15, 20, 25 years, the political map was constantly changing. And there were wars of various kinds, and, and uh, it's, it's a little difficult to sort it out. All that matters for our purposes right now is uh, to keep in mind that you have these three individuals, and in particular the, the last two, they're the really important ones, a fellow named Antigonus, 
eventually ended up with a part of Asia Minor and Macedonia up here. Another general by the name of Seleucus uh, was in control of this area, Babylon, and the surrounding environments of Babylon. And the other general, uh, at least the other one that's of interest to us, Ptolemy, uh, controlled Egypt. Uh, that's the main thing, but also uh, this area of Cyrene, the island of Cyprus, and Palestine. This is very important. Um, after the death of Alexander, what it means is that the Jewish people, and by the way, you will remember that earlier, while they were still under the dominance of the Persian Empire, the Jews were allowed to return to Palestine, Jews who had been in Babylon and so on. Uh, don't be fooled, most of them didn't go back. Most of them remain in Babylon and, and in some of the, the areas in Persia as well. But the many of them did, reconstructed the temple and so on. They were still under the dominion of the Persians. Comes Alexander the Great and the Jews are under the dominion of Alexander. Now after his death, the Jews are under the dominion of the Ptolemies, so-called. The Ptolemies, the Ptolemaic Empire. And uh, we don't have a lot of information about what was going on among the Jews at this time. But it appears that they were pretty much allowed to, you know, go on with their daily lives, to worship their God, to practice their uh, religion as they wanted. There must have been a certain amount of cultural pressure to adopt Greek ways, but uh, apparently it, did not, it was not severe enough to cause a lot of resistance. Things were about to change. Uh, the, uh, the rule under the Ptolemies went on for a significant period of time from about the year 300 to the year 200, really over a century. But then something very uh, serious happens. The Seleucid Empire, that's the, the area that had been ruled by Seleucus, continued to grow and eventually he was able to conquer Asia Minor as well. And uh, the Seleucids <clears throat> had their eye on Palestine. Why? Palestine was a critical geographical area. Uh, you talk about a buffer zone. This, this, Palestine is a classic buffer zone. Because if you control that area, that gives you tremendous advantage, both in terms of commerce and in terms of defending your territory. If you want to go from... Egypt to Mesopotamia, you basically have to go through Palestine. You may go on the east side of the Jordan to be sure, but you still have to go through that general area. Uh, if, if you control this, you see, if, if the Egyptians are controlling this, it's very difficult for somebody to uh, gain access to Egypt and vice versa. So understandably, the Seleucids were very interested in, in gaining uh, control of Palestine, and they tried a number of occasions, 
finally they succeeded under this fellow Antiochus III. Antiochus III, also known as Antiochus the Great. By the way, all of the emperors of the Ptolemaic Empire are called Ptolemy. So you have Ptolemy the first, and Ptolemy the second, and, and so on and so forth. Unless uh, the emperor happened to be an empress, and then her name was Cleopatra. Now there were actually several of them. The one that you are familiar with was the very last one. Okay. Now the capital of the Ptolemaic Empire was Alexandria. Alexander founded it and gave it the name Alexandria. Actually, he founded a lot of towns which he named Alexandria. But this one is the real one. I mean, this is the one that became uh, one of the largest cities uh, in the ancient world. In fact, at the time of the Roman Empire, Rome, of course, was the largest city as the capital of the empire. Alexandria was the second largest city in the whole Mediterranean area. The third largest city was Antioch. Antioch was up here. And it was the capital of the Seleucid Empire. And you see the connection between Antioch and Antiochus. Uh, there was an earlier Antiochus who, um, in whose name uh, this, the, the capital was, um, was named. Upon the conquest of Palestine by the Seleucids. There were some important changes that, that began to take place. At the beginning, not too severe apparently, uh, because uh, remember th this uh, conquest took place about the year 198. And for a couple of decades, things were relatively stable in Palestine. <clears throat> But then comes this fellow Antiochus IV, and then we have this very serious conflict over Hellenization. What is Hellenization? Well, what I was talking about before, to adopt the Greek ways of thinking and of uh, practice. When people in Asia Minor did such a thing, they were Hellenizing. The Jews, as a rule, tended to resist Hellenization. Not all of them, but many of them did. And uh, with the coming of Antiochus IV, this became a critical issue for the history of the Jewish people. Antiochus IV was a, um, an unusual fellow. I think it's Will Durant who speaks about Antiochus IV having a, um, an unusual mixture of charm and insanity. Um, his name Epiphanes already tells you something of what's going on here. Epiphanes means God manifest. And that's the way he referred to himself, Antiochus Epiphanes. He viewed himself as a divine manifestation. That wasn't all that unusual, actually, a number of, of people would say that. The difference is that Antiochus apparently really believed this. And um, oh, there are all kinds of stories about him. Um, 
uh, he said to uh, sometimes um, he would have he would go to the marketplace and he would um, disguise himself and then he would ask people what do you think of the emperor and people say oh he's a wonderful man you know and so on and, and Antiochus would believe all this stuff but uh, he uh, he had some real problems uh, personally and he was also facing the um, specter of the Romans who were beginning to move east. By the time of Antiochus, the Romans really have uh, moved into this area, quite at least to, to a certain degree. And he's a little bit concerned about what's going to happen when they get all the way here, because he knows how they're going to make it. It seems to be an almost unstoppable uh, force. And he begins to make preparations. That means he's got to unify his empire. He's got to make sure that there are no cracks. And that means, for one thing, trying to make sure that there is a certain amount of cultural unity. So he begins to put more and more pressure on all of the different ethnic groups under his control to adopt Greek ways of doing things. Besides, he also needs money. He, he has to strengthen his uh, uh, military forces. So one of the things that um, uh, begin to happen now <clears throat> is that by, by the kind of pressure that he's putting upon Palestine, the Jewish people themselves begin to divide over that whole question. Jewish dissension, I call it here in the outline. This thing really focused on the priesthood. Now you need to understand that when Jerusalem was destroyed way back in the 6th century BC under the Babylonians, uh, now you no longer have a king ruling over the Jewish people. Later on, when the Jews were allowed to return by the Persians, they still couldn't have a king. So what happened was that the high priest, who was the head of the cult, you, you know, we use the term cult, not in the sense of a, a weird religious group, but in the sense of, of the ceremonial structure. Uh, the head of the cult, the one who is guiding over the sacrifices in the temple and so on, this was the high priest. And that was his only responsibility. He was not supposed to have civic or civil responsibilities. And there were some very sharp uh, lines drawn between the king here and the priest there and the prophet over here. <coughs> but now, without a king, and more or less by default, the high priest takes on more and more significance <clears throat> in civic duties. One of the fellows here, Onias III, <coughs> happened to be the high priest at the time when, when Antiochus IV was beginning to exert all this pressure. Onias' brother, Jason, 
By the way, the name Jason already tells you something. That's a Greek name. His Jewish name was Joshua. But he adopted uh, the Greek name Jason, and that already reflects something about his whole perspective here. He was not as concerned with uh, preserving a, a strict Jewish uh, way of thinking. He was willing to make some concessions, if you will, to the Greek world. And he struck a deal with the emperor Antiochus, <clears throat> something, something along the lines of, look, <clears throat> if you make me high priest, I will give you so much more money in taxes. Uh, that was a, uh, an offer that Antiochus could not refuse. So Onias III was deposed, and his brother Jason was made high priest. Now, here again, we, here's a cultural problem for us to really appreciate how incredibly offensive <clears throat> this would be to the Jewish people uh, who held their traditions in esteem. There was nothing more sacred, really, than the office of the high priest. There are some very strict guidelines. Uh, no, not anyone could be high priest. You had to belong not only to the tribe of Levi, but within the tribe of Levi you had to be a descendant of Aaron. And uh, from about the time of Solomon, <clears throat> Uh, there was a custom observed that only <coughs> the descendants of Solomon's high priest, Zadok, only the Zadokites could be high priests. Uh, so you had some very strict uh, rules about this. The notion that anyone would presume to take upon himself that office was a total violation of, uh, of, of the religious constitution, if you will. You're adding insult to injury when you're having a pagan making that kind of a decision. Of course, once this business begins, you get into even more trouble because there's this other guy, Menelaus, and he decides that he can offer Antiochus even more money. And guess what? Jason gets deposed, and Menelaus now becomes the, the high priest. <clears throat> this is even more serious, because at least in the case of Jason, he belonged to the correct lineage. Menelaus did not. In fact, there's even some doubt as to whether he was a priest at all, Belo whether he belonged to the priestly line at all. Uh, and so things were really becoming very serious. Because inevitably, you know, when you have a situation like that, you're going to have dissension within the people. Uh, some of them, perhaps most of them, would have opposed what was going on, but others would have supported it for whatever reason. And things began to get worse and worse. Uh, for example, <clears throat> at some point in, the, um, in this whole development, a gymnasium was built in Jerusalem. Now you understand that a gymnasium is not a place where you play basketball back then. Uh, it's more, you know, in, in Europe a gymnasium is, is like the high school. It's a center of, of education. 
and in the Greek world, it was the place where, of course, men would go uh, and exercise. But it wasn't just exercise, it was in the context of a pagan a worldview and, and uh, you know, a certain amount of, uh, of, of religious ritual was um, involved in, in, in that particular place. The very thought of a pagan place like that in the holy city uh, created a lot of, uh, of uh, resentment. But there were many Jews who um, wanted to be up with the times. Times change. And so they want to be part of this. That could be a little bit of a problem because the Greek men would exercise naked. And uh, the Jews were, uh, many of them, ashamed of the sign of, of circumcision. And according to the book of 1 Maccabees, I'll say more about 1 Maccabees later on, but it's a historical document, semi-historical document. Uh, some of the Jews would actually undergo a very painful operation to hide the marks of circumcision so they could participate in, in, in this Greek, more or less pagan <coughs> situation. Now, again, you see, you've got to think here, wait a minute. Circumcision, the sign of the covenant, this is, this is the way that God marks his people as his. So for these Jews to do that was tantamount to a to apostasy. And what happens in, in these situations also happens in the Christian communities. And uh, you probably have experienced this uh, if you've been in the church for a long period of time. <clears throat> you always have a group that says, well, you know, we're not uh, out of the world, we're in the world, and, and we really ought to have some contact with uh, people who are non-Christians. And of course, you can uh, justify that, but there's some other Christians say, yeah, but you got to be very careful, and I think we better stay away from that sort of thing. And then the people in the other group say, you're overreacting here, and just to make the point, they move a little bit further that way, and the people here say, see, we told you what they were going to do, and so you get a little bit, and so things begin to polarize and polarize and polarize. You have a, a, an excellent example of this in, in the church in Corinth. <clears throat> when you read 1 Corinthians, you shake your head in disbelief that in the same church you have some, some members of the church actually going to, to the uh, temple prostitutes in, in, in Corinth and thinking nothing of it apparently. And you also have some people in the church who say you shouldn't marry at all. And if you're married, then you've got to treat your spouse as a brother or sister, you see. <clears throat> but that same tendency, that's what was happening among the Jews at this time. In the course of that, uh, they appear to develop something of a movement which uh, we refer to as the Hasidim. <coughs> the Hasidim. <coughs> the Hebrew word Hasid means a faithful one. And the Hasidim, uh, you know, it, it's not as though they were a, a well-defined party or anything. It was probably more like a, a loosely organized movement of people who were really scandalized by, by what was happening and they were determined to retain faithfully uh, their Jewish traditions. And so what you end up having is a growing 
movement of opposition to this whole uh, process of Hellenization. Antiochus was not a real cool guy. You know, he was not very sensitive to what was going on. He, he did not understand what was happening. And um, he began to appreciate <clears throat> that um, the religion of the Jews was creating problems that he had not faced anywhere else. And uh, instead of understanding or trying to understand the, the mind of, of the Jewish people, he just figured what he needed to do was to put even more pressure on the religion. And so he's, he starts doing all these stupid things. At one point where he was really running low on funds, he actually plunders the temple. Uh, he goes into the temple, plunders it. Um, I'm, I'm not saying at, at that point, I don't believe he personally went into the temple, but uh, uh, some of the treasures of the temple were uh, taken uh, to um, fund his military campaigns. At a later point, he builds this Acra. An Acra was something like a military fortress. And it was like a Greek polis, you know, a Greek city, self-governing city. And it was built right on Jerusalem, on Mount Zion. And again, you know, we probably cannot appreciate how incredibly offensive this would have been to the sensibilities of the Jews that on Mount Zion, on, on God's holy mount, a pagan city should be built. Things were going from bad to worse. And uh, finally, Antiochus came to the conclusion that the only way he was going to make headway was by simply uh, getting rid of Judaism as a religion. And that's exactly what he decreed, that no longer could, would anyone be allowed to practice the Jewish religion. And how do you enforce that? Well, you begin to burn copies of the Torah. You do not allow families to practice the rite of circumcision. And if uh, somebody is caught doing it, they are killed. Now, you see, here you come to the place where the very existence of the Jewish people was being jeopardized. <clears throat> and uh, there are some Jewish historians. Uh, in fact, if, if I remember correctly, we have a, uh, an important encyclopedia, the, the Encyclopedia Judaica, um, which um, has some articles on this subject, and, and uh, the comment is made in one of those articles, as I re recall, that Judaism, not just as a religion, <clears throat> but as a distinct people, uh, came you know, just this close from uh, being wiped out from the face of the earth. And it, if it had not been for the revolt that would take place, the Maccabean revolt, maybe there would have been, you know, aside from God's plans, we're just looking at things in terms of just human developments, uh, would have disappeared. <clears throat> what was the Maccabean revolt? Move on to the next page on the syllabus.
there was a um, priest named Mattathias who uh, lived in a little town uh, not too far from Jerusalem. I don't think it is um, listed here, but here's Jerusalem. And Modin, as I recall, is somewhere in, in this area, not too far. <clears throat> On one occasion in the year 167 BC, oh, and I forgot something very, very important. As part of, of this whole uh, program that Antiochus had in mind, he uh, did something which came to be known as the great desecration of the temple. He had a statue of himself placed in the temple as part of the manifestation of Zeus, the, the god, and sacrifices were made to him. And to really rub it in, pigs were used as uh, the sacrifice just to be as offensive as possible to the customs of the Jewish people, for whom the pig was, of course, the, the epitome of the unclean animal. <clears throat> well, in the year 167, um, a Seleucid officer <clears throat> comes to this town in Modin, and uh, you know they would do this in many of the towns where the Jews lived. Um, the, the officer said to Mattathias, ask the priest resident in that town to offer a sacrifice in honor of Zeus, Antiochus. Well, Mattathias, who was a faithful priest, refused to do so. And the officer just took somebody else in the crowd and said, okay, you offer the sacrifice. And this other man was totally intimidated and went ahead and began to uh, perform the, uh, the ritual. Mattathias lost it. He got so enraged that he uh, took it upon himself to kill both the Seleucid officer and the man who had offered the sacrifice. And as soon as he did it, he realized <laughs> what he had done, and he uh, got away with a group of followers, and this became, in effect, the beginnings of the Jewish revolt, because more and more people were joining his forces. <clears throat> they were just hiding here and there. If you've seen uh, pictures of Palestine, well, maybe if you haven't been there, this would not be as, as obvious to you, but... Uh, there are all these ravines and, and uh, very difficult places to move about. And for people who really know the territory, it is relatively easy to hide among the, uh, just, just because of the topography. <clears throat> there were some uh, skirmishes and uh, things did not always go well. But just a few months after this initial e event, if you will, Mattathias died. And his son Judas, 
uh, Judah would be the, the Hebrew form of the name. Judas, the Greek form of the name, but uh, the same name. Judas uh, became the leader of the group. He was not the, uh, the eldest, by the way, but he seemed the most gifted in terms of military uh, prowess. And he is the one who apparently was given the name Maccabee. The name Maccabee is it's an Aramaic term that probably means the hammer. Uh, Judah the hammer, because he was so uh, effective in, in uh, defeating uh, forces that were more numerous than his. You know, in the course of history, the term hammer has been given to some important people like um, Charles Martel. Remember Charles Martel, the Frenchman who defeated the, the Moors? The word Martel means hammer. Uh, Hank the hammer. Hank Aaron and his 714 home runs. <clears throat> uh, he was very gifted at, at what we now call guerrilla warfare. This ability with a relatively small number of people to get around here and there and uh, cause trouble for larger armies. And uh, we get a lot of this information from the book that I mentioned previously, First Maccabees. <clears throat> this is a book <clears throat> that was composed about the second century, some, sometime after these events. And which, uh, if, you, if you get a, a Roman Catholic Bible, you will find First Maccabees in, the, in a Roman Catholic Bible, uh, but not in a Jewish or a Protestant Bible. And uh, it is a, an interesting book. You will be reading from it uh, in, in Barrett's books. There are some portions of, of that. It's, it's one of our primary sources for this historical period. Uh, it is not totally reliable, but uh, it is a fairly serious work and, and gives us a lot of information that otherwise we would not have. Probably the um, descriptions of uh, Judah's uh, victories is a little exaggerated in the book. But there must have been some truth to it that uh, he was able to defeat armies that were several times larger than his own uh, because of his uh, uh, skills. Eventually, in the year 164, he is able to recapture Jerusalem. And one of the first items of business is to cleanse the temple from the pagan uh, desecration. Um, this came to be known as the rededication of the temple. And the Hebrew term for that is Hanukkah. So the Feast of Hanukkah is a celebration of this particular event. Um, it is one of the most um, important feasts for the Jewish people. And, and uh, you, know, you need to reflect on this and try to get a sense of what it would have meant to them. When Antiochus desecrated the temple, that was interpreted by many people as the fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9 about the abomination of desolation. And uh, for the Jewish people to uh, resist a great empire with very great uh, military forces was, was a wonderful occasion. And now they are able to regain the religious liberty, which is really what they were interested in. You might say that they should have been satisfied. Now we've got our temple back. Now we can practice our religion again. Fine. 
The problem is that once you taste victory, it's very difficult to, uh, to remain content. And, uh, you know, whether this was a very well thought out thing or not, probably not, uh, they began to look beyond that to regain political freedom as well. Now, you see, political freedom they had enjoyed for four centuries since uh, the destruction of Jerusalem. But that's what they're after now. Judas uh, is able to win a few more victories here and there, but then he's killed. And his brother Jonathan uh, takes up the challenge. Jonathan wasn't quite as gifted in, in military <coughs> efforts, although he did you know, reasonably well. <coughs> But he had a real knack for diplomatic negotiations. <clears throat> he began to make contact with other governments. And uh, the, the point where he was able to do something significant was at one stage where the, the uh, Seleucid emperor died and there was a struggle for the succession. There were two people who claimed to be the rightful heirs. Jonathan decided to put his money, if you will, <clears throat> both literally and figuratively, uh, <clears throat> on a man named Alexander Bayless. You don't need to know that. And they struck a deal. Look, I will support you, Alexander, if you make me high priest. Well, it turns out that uh, it was a good deal for him. Alexander became the next emperor. And Alexander gave Jonathan the high priesthood. Wait a minute. That's what began this whole trouble in the first place. Somebody who does not have a right, because he, he was a, of a priestly descent, but he was not a Zadokite. He was not a descendant of Zadok. And now, in, in what seems to be a betrayal of the cause... He now becomes a high priest and unites in himself both the religious and the political headship of the Jewish people. Eventually his, he dies and his brother Simon or Simeon takes uh, uh, control and uh, he gains political independence from the Seleucids eventually in the year 142 and thus the so-called Hasmonean dynasty begins. And I'll say a little bit more about that uh, tomorrow. Um, think about these things, begin reading uh, Loza. Uh, I think what I will do, I will continue lecturing and talk about Hasmonean independence, and then we'll have a time of 10 or 15 minutes to let you ask questions about everything that we may have covered up to that point. Okay?